Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Jacob Ibarra from Tenfold Coffee coming up in a little bit. But first, I am joined by my co-host this week. She is a passionate lover of food, wine, and good times, as well as a health and beauty expert and a newly licensed esthetician, Felice Sloan, the swanky maven. Welcome to the show. Hey, 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 hey. I was going to change it up, but I'm like, people are like, she's all brand new. Where's the hey, 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 hey. So there you go. No, you got to you gotta be true to yourself. <laughs> yeah, I got to keep it real. I got to be true. <sighs> all right. Well, let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has allowed restaurants statewide to raise their capacity from 50% to 75% beginning this week. However, bars are still closed. Restaurants that do move to 75% still have to maintain six feet between parties unless they put up partitions between tables and some other some other details. Felice, let me throw it to you. Now, the, the coronavirus numbers are going down. Governor Abbott cited the declining rate of hospitalization as the, the motivator for this decision. But how safe do you think you would feel at a restaurant that was at 75% capacity? Let's just say I'm going to continue doing and feeling like I feel now. Um, so there's restaurants that are already functioning like that. They have been, it doesn't, I guess for the people that have been following the rules, for them, it probably feels like this is great. Um, for consumers, they've kind of decided where they sit on it. I don't think going to 75, from 50 to 75, is going to change it for a lot of people. So I think I'm going to continue to do what I'm doing. I feel safer sitting outside. Um, if I go to a restaurant and I see that they've been following the rules when it was 25 and 50, then you know, they're usually doing all the things, having things for you to sanitize your hands and, you know, the everything is contactless. So I'm going to feel the same way. Um, yeah, that's that's me. What about you? Right. No, I, I agree with you. I don't think this changes much for me in the sense that I am still, I, I keep using the word strategic to describe my approach to dining in and restaurants. That's a great word. Yes. I have been eating inside in restaurants uh, almost since they were very first allowed to do so, but I'm only eating at places where I feel good about their health and sanitization and, and all their PPE practices. Right. So if I, correct. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't know that visually, you know, I can look around at a dining room and go, this is 50, this is 75, this is a hundred, whatever. I just know where I feel comfortable. And if it looks too crowded or the tables are too close together, or I see a lot of people standing around in big groups, not wearing masks, uh, that's a no for me. That's a, that's a go back to the parking lot, get back in the car and find somewhere else to eat dinner. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's me. Um, I think I usually say something like, Oh, wow. Okay. So, we're just doing our own thing in here. 
I'm feeling bad for the people that are actually there and, you know, they're kind of like, they're not following the rules, but they want to eat. So, um, yeah, it, it's about the safety for me. So. Well, and I think the other piece of this is that most people at this point have made kind of a decision about their personal behavior and either they're going to go out in public and go to restaurants, understanding that there is however small a potential risk of exposure to the virus or they're not going to take that risk and they're going to stay home and cook or get takeout or whatever. So I don't, I don't know that this changes very much for people. Um, you know what? I, I do feel bad for bars though, because there's no, there, there does not seem to be any path forward from the governor for bars to reopen other than paying money and getting their license to be restaurants and then they have to figure out food, whether they're going to make their own food or partner with a food truck or whatever. And I mean, there are there are bars that we love that it doesn't really make sense to have food at, right? I mean, correct. The one yeah. that comes to mind is Two Headed Dog in Midtown, which had a, a very emotional post on Instagram last week about how they don't want to be a restaurant; they they want to be a bar. They want to operate as a bar. They want to operate safely and with respect for their employees and their customers. And they've got a nice outdoor patio that would be perfect, especially now that the weather's cooling off a little bit and they can't, there's no, there's no procedure for them, even at 50% or even with only table service or even with not sitting in a bar. And it, you know, I don't, I don't want to go like one way or another on the political spectrum, but it doesn't seem fair to me that the governor and the state regulators are are basically picking winners and losers and who gets to stay, what kind of businesses get to be open in the pandemic at this point when the infection rates are in decline. And exactly make it make sense to me. Understand how to behave. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Make it make sense. That's what, yeah. I don't want to get political and all that, but to me, it's a, it's a bunch of crap. Um, I'm like, it doesn't make sense. You guys are picking and choosing. Um, it seems like it's a lot about it's a lot about politics and money, and it just it just it's not fair. It makes me really upset. <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, no one has been more vocal about this than Bobby Hugel, who owns Anvil and Better Luck Tomorrow, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, two-headed dog has been, you know, um, Mike, um, Michael Neff from the Cottonmouth club has been very yeah. vocal about this. And, and I think, you know, if nothing else, they deserve an answer, right? They deserve some sort of response right. from yeah. the state of Texas. It's like, you know, when the hospitalization rate is X or when the positivity rate is Y, you know, we will start letting bars reopen, but they don't even, they don't even have that certainty. Right. They're not. Well, and then they're not going to give it because they're winging it like we've been winging it. They we're going to get political. So, yeah, they're winging it. They can't give them an answer because they don't have one. So there you go. <laughs> right. And then I, I think the you know, the infuriating thing, I think, is that, you know, there are there are bars that have converted to restaurant operations. Right. They 
which means that they are required to keep people seated. People aren't allowed to walk around or, or, you know, order from the bar or, or all this stuff. Mm. And then you see the pictures on social media of what the reality of those operations looks like. Yeah. And they're not, it, you know, it doesn't look like they're consistently following the rules or there's video clips of people that look like they're breaking the rules and maybe we don't see the staff rushing over and telling them that they have to sit down or they have to move they're away from not. each other. The staff is tired. They are not. The, what we see is exactly how it goes down. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, okay, we can make sandwiches, serve these sandwiches, get this money, and it's a party. I mean, and you kind of know it. Like, like, I have friends that have gone to some of these places and they go all the time. And I'm like, it looks like um, 2019, <laughs> right? Nothing. If you look at the pictures today and last year, they look the exact same. Right. So they're sad. <laughs> right. All right. So yeah, there does not seem to be an obvious solution to uh, this issue, but it is sort of worth, it is sort of worth bringing up and sort of checking in. And, and I, I mean, I would say if people, people who feel strongly about this should certainly contact the governor's office, contact TABC, contact your various state representatives and let them know that, that this is something that's important to you. Yes. Let your voices be heard. I would agree. All right. Topic number two, considerably lighter. <laughs> we are getting a new cheesesteak in Houston. It's a company called Lefty's Cheesesteaks. They're from Detroit. And they have partnered with Deshaun Watson, Texans quarterback, key of the $160 million contract extension, to open some stores here. Felice, let me, uh, let me just put it to you. Do you feel like Houston has sufficiently good cheesesteak options, or are you sort of intrigued by what Lefties has to offer? Yeah. Um, no, I don't even think we're contenders. Like when I think of cheesesteak, I think of cheesesteak, um, like I think of gumbo, right? Like it just, I wouldn't even say gumbo because we probably have more gumbo options. No, I think if it's, they can have a market, right? Because um, getting cheesesteak, there's places you go and it's, okay, it's good. Maybe a chef does a special and they knock it out of the park, but you can't get it all the time. So I'm interested. I'll check it out. I'm not going to just be super hopeful that it's going to be that. And we're going to be like, hey, we're in the cheesesteak business. You know, I'm just, I'm not there, but I'll definitely, I'm interested in seeing what they're going to do. And, um, if they're able to be successful with it. I hope they are. I, I will say, I watched a video of Sam Barry, the founder of Lefties, making a cheesesteak. And he, he has the meat on the griddle. And then he kind of divides the meat into two sections and puts the cheese in between them. So that rather than putting the cheese on top, mm -hmm. so that it's kind of infused into the middle of the sandwich and every bite has cheese in it. And I don't know if that's how all cheesesteaks are made. And maybe I just haven't been paying attention, 
but that looked like a really good idea to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think, you know, I'm with it. Like, I'm like, oh, because that's something that I can get with, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, that's what I said. I'm hopeful. I always like when we're able to get like food that I travel for and I look forward um, to it here and it's like authentic and it it um gives me my fix so i'm always i'm welcoming to that all right and then do you care that deshaun watson likes this restaurant and wants to invest his money in it i don't care at all i mean good for deshaun i'm actually glad to see that he's diversifying his portfolio okay (laughs) yes i'm happy that's that's great um Will that make me go because it's his restaurant? Absolutely not. No. Mm-mm. All right. Okay. Sorry for the interruption. More of what's Eric eating is coming up here in a second. But first, this is super important. Babe Wine has officially made its way to Texas. Yep, that's right. It's the cute, delicious, take anywhere bubbly wine in a can that pairs well with literally everything. Even your grandma's iconic cornbread. Thanks, grandma. Find our Grigio, Rosé, and Red Wines at H-E-B, Specs, Kroger, Walmart, and Target. You're welcome. Now back to the show. Mm, Rosé and cornbread. Who would have thought? And then finally, topic number three. The last time you were on the show, we talked about influencers because Chris Shepard had a post on his Instagram where he called out an unnamed influencer who sent one of his restaurants a blind pitch that basically said, if you'll give me free food, I will give you exposure. And Chris Mm -hmm. said, this was not the time to be asking for free food. Restaurants are struggling. If you want to support a restaurant, buy, you know, go to the restaurant and buy food. And of course, all the influencers on Instagram were very up in arms about this criticism and said, look, we do a lot for restaurants. You know, we earn our, essentially we, we earn our free food and, and whatever we're paid. And then, so we, we had a, a very thorough conversation about that. It was just a couple of weeks ago. I would encourage anyone to go listen to that. Now, I would too. last week, a videographer and photographer named Michael Ma, who I don't think of as an influencer, he's sort of influencer adjacent, yeah. made a documentary about Julie Jules, one of my personal favorite influencers. Julie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who and the and the good that she did for small businesses by posting about them on her TikTok. And so uh, it's on YouTube. I will link to I will link to the documentary in the Culture Map article that accompanies this podcast for everybody. But so I I have one big point I want to make about this, Felice, but first. Let me just ask you, what did you think of Michael Ma's documentary about Julie Jules? Okay, so Michael does a very good job. Like like you said, he's influencer adjacent because that's he's kind of joined his love of food with photography and videography. And so I thought he did a lovely job of capturing the essence of Julie. It was so well put together. Um, it made me proud to be also a part of that community. I think Julie represented herself. Um, she represented what an influencer in this space should look like. Um, 
meaning how to deal with businesses. And you can take, once you watch it, you can take that and apply it to however, if you're doing mom and pop, she's, she wanted to get back to uh, minority businesses that are smaller businesses that are mom and pops that, you know, don't have this voice. So um, I thought her approach was kind of represented her because in her regular life, take the TikTok, take the Instagram away. That's what she does. That's who she is. So she combined her passion as a creative with her love for food, with her love for people. Um, she gets kind of personal in there. So then you kind of have um, some background of what drives her to want to, you know, help people outside of just her love for the food. And um, she didn't go out to be um, this runaway star on TikTok, right? Like it was literally about the people. And it just really made me proud to see her do that and to see influencers in that light. Yeah. And I just want to amplify one point that you, that you made. And I just want to be a little bit more explicit about it because I think it's so important. She went to those places, not to pitch them on hiring her or giving her anything. She went to them because she was intrigued by them and made a TikTok because she enjoyed her experience. And then when those videos went viral, you know, when they got attention and customers started to go to those businesses because of the content she created, then those businesses approached her about working together in the future. And that is so much more productive and 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 a much healthier relationship than a blind pitch sent to an Instagram of a restaurant that you've never been to that you don't know anything about it, you know, let your, let your enthusiasm be your guide. Right. And then if the restaurant likes your content and wants to work with you, then, then let them kind of initiate that relationship, but hitting yeah. people up for hitting people up for free, anything is just really like an ugly business. And, and so I think it, it does, the documentary does sort of reveal the power of social media and influencers to really help a business grow its revenue, but the approach has to be done in the right way. Right. And you did make a point. I'm glad that you pointed that out because not only do, um, I think it shows influencers in a good light, but you know, all these businesses that think, oh, all influencers are the same, number one, they're not. And the ones that say, oh, you know what? I don't need that. I can do X, Y, Z. And just discount social media's power altogether, right? They're like, this is the way to do it, this traditional way. I think there's a couple of examples where the owners are like, you know, I don't know anything about any of these things. I don't have a TikTok. I don't have a this. And customers were coming in. Oh, how'd you hear about us? Oh, TikTok, TikTok, do and they're like, wait, what? Who? So it made them see, hey, this one video literally changed my business. <laughs> this one person, she came in, like, you know, we did a good job. She liked her food and it changed our business. So I think any businesses right now that are kind of not even either struggling or trying to figure out, hey, how can I bring 
more people through the doors, they would benefit from watching the documentary and just seeing um, seeing the organic growth of it and seeing what um, the benefit of a partnership with the influencer when it's done the right way can look like. Absolutely. All right, Felice, that does it for the News of the Week. We'll be right back with our Restaurants of the Week. Stick around. Our Restaurants of the Week are brought to you by Cutwater Spirits. Cutwater Spirits takes their award-winning real spirits uses them to make great cocktails, which they then put into cans, so you can easily take them where no cocktail has gone before, even if that's just your own backyard in summer 2020. Cutwater offers a convenient way to enjoy your favorite bar-quality cocktail outside of the bar setting. They have a wide variety of over 17 delicious canned cocktails and 20 bottled spirits, so there is something for everyone. The Vodka Mule, Tequila Margarita, Grapefruit Vodka Soda, and tequila soda are just a few of their fan favorites. You can find Cutwater locally at Specs, Total Wine, Goody Goody, and more. Visit cutwaterspirits.com for more information. Felice, for our restaurants of the week, I want to talk to you about two establishments, one new and one old. Let's start with the original hot dog factory. This is the first Houston location of a restaurant that started in Atlanta, it is kind of famous. It's been prominently featured on The Real Housewives of Atlanta, which is not actually a show that I watch. So you're going to get just just for the people who are like me that don't watch Real Housewives uh, of anywhere from any city. Can you just explain kind of the role of this restaurant in the show? So the role of the restaurant, uh, one of the main housewives, Portia, um, Portia's fiance, uh, they break up and get together. I don't know if he's back on his fiance, but her, her kid's father, and I think they're still maybe engaged. That is, he started this, he started this, that's his claim to fame. And on the show, um, probably like last, about a year ago, it was a year ago, they were talking about expanding outside, you know, kind of franchising. And the Houston sisters that own it, they were watching that episode and it's like, hey, they're thinking about starting this. Houston doesn't, we don't have a lot of hot dog places. And really when you say the rest is history, they reached out, um, talked about, hey, we would love to be a franchise. They end up being the first franchise, like you said, in Houston and also in Texas. There's no other one yet in Texas. Um, almost a year to the date, um, that they started the journey. So yeah, so that's, he's one of the key, key boyfriends, fiance, husbands in the show. So that's kind of how they got their claim to fame with everyone knowing or people here that would know about it. That's how they would know about it. Right. All right. So the sisters who are the local franchisees are Juanita and Bridget Sharkey. They are graduates of both Lamar High School and Texas Southern University which makes them about as Houstonian as it gets. Yep. <laughs> and they have opened on Studemont and Montrose. Uh, well, let me just, let me just ask you straight up. What did you think of your hot dogs at the original hot dog factory? 
I was, you know, I think it's so cool. The, they're, I guess they're factory dogs, kind of, we were kind of talking about cheesesteak earlier. They kind of do the hot dogs, the factory dogs from all the cities, the popular, like they got the Detroit dog, Chicago dog, New York dog, um, kind of what those dogs will look like in the cities. So of course I wanted to do all of them, but I ended up doing, I love the Chicago dogs. I did the Chicago dog. Um, I tasted the, I did a taco dog and a classic. And I thought they were, they did a lovely job. They were solid. That Chicago dog um, was, they, they did a really good job. My favorite was the taco dog though, because it was literally like I was eating a taco. So, you know, I had no expectations because I'm like, maybe this is going to be a little gimmicky. But yeah, I thought they were, I thought the hot dogs were solid. What about you? Which ones did you get? All right. So I also got a Chicago dog. Okay. <laughs> I got an Italian sausage with onions and peppers. And I got some chicken wings just with the regular hot, you know, spicy buffalo sauce. Okay. So I, I will say I, you know, I am a good dog fan. Like when it comes to my local hot dog options, mm-hmm. I think the, the, the actual dog itself in my Chicago dog was just a little bit small uh, mm, okay. and just a little bit, it just, it lacked flavor. Um, I thought the toppings were very flavorful, but the dog itself uh, a little small and a little bland for me, but that Italian sausage, they throw that in the fryer to crisp it up. Mm-hmm. And then you get the sauteed sausage and peppers on it. That was delicious. I, you know, I, I took a couple of bites of the Chicago dog. I was like, Okay, I kind of see what they're going for here. I finished the Italian dog. You were like, like okay, this is it for me. This, this is my is, pick. This is what I wanted. And then I, I thought the wings, I thought the wings were pretty good. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would say that they were special or that it's a wing destination. Uh, but now, I heard, friend, did you get them extra crispy? Did you get them? No, extra I, crispy? I, I just got them. I just said, give me an order of wings. Oh, okay. Right. I cool. did not. I did not specify. Now, our friend Matt Harris said he ordered them extra crispy and that they were a little bit life-changing. Yes, that's what I heard. (laughs) So That's the thing. They have a lot of other things on the menu. You know, I'm not a wings person. Like, I'll eat wings, but when someone says life-changing wing, I'm there. So next time, I'm definitely getting the wings. And um, I did And I forgot to get dessert. I mean, they have fried Oreos, and I totally forgot to do that. And I did not. I did not. So where you forgot, I didn't. I got, and here's the cool thing about the fried Oreos. They have fried Oreos and I think fried Twinkies. I'm not a Twinkie person in real life, but Oreos all day long. And not only do they do the traditional Oreos, see, they go, they, they one up it and do the golden Oreos too. No one's doing that. Yeah. So you get both. You get both of them. So it's pretty pretty special <laughs> that is good to know yes yes so just all right saying. so all right so you will go back to the original hot dog factory i will go back i have about three more hot dogs that i want to try and i need to get the wings yes <laughs> yeah i think i'm gonna go i might go back for that italian sausage or maybe some of the 
the the dogs that don't use that standard dog, I think I'm kind of done with the standard dog. So do you think it's the meat to bun ratio that's throwing you off? Yeah, I just thought it was okay. a little small. I think you should do the foot long because they did. I don't know if you saw the video. They have a foot long. See, and I thought the foot long. I'm like, wow, that foot long. The um, it's huge, and I thought it was too much hot dog to bread for me. So All I right. think you're the way you should go is the foot long. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'll give the foot long a try, and yeah. then, uh, and then obviously I didn't get fried Oreos, so I gotta get fried Oreos. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> All right. And then for our second restaurant, I want to talk to you about Fat Eatery, the Malaysian restaurant in Katy. Now we've been to Fat Eatery, you know, when it opened a couple of years ago, and it and it had been a minute since I had been back there, but I wanted to check in on it because. Uh, they have rolled out dim sum and it's right. not like a, it's not like a huge menu, but they are doing basically the dim sum that you want or that I want, which is <laughs> the shrimp dumplings, the high gal, uh, the pork and shrimp shumai, the pork shumai and the barbecue pork buns. Right? right. That when I, when I go to dim sum, those are the things I want the most. And then I get other stuff. So the ability to get those things plus an order of their, uh, chili crab legs, that that's a good dinner as far as I'm concerned. You know what? That's yeah, we were going for the dim sum. <laughs> Them having the crab, like still having crab left when we got there was kind of like Christmas in September for me. Yeah. So what did you think of either the dim sum or the crab legs? Um yes and yes. <laughs> yes and yes. Um I thought the crap. So the dim sum was much better than, you know, I'm like, okay, it'll be dim sum. They'll do a good job because they do a good job. But I didn't expect it to, um, for them to take dim sum and do it better than some dim sum places. Just um, their execution of it, um, the use of ingredients. Um, I think they knocked it out of the park. And I think we, we got... A little bit more, I think if we had room, we would have gotten, would we could have kept eating till we rolled out of there. Um, and the crab, the flavor of the crab was outstanding. And if, you know, for people that eat, like go and do the bowl crabs. And for me, sometimes they, they lack flavor. This was the opposite. You know, well, we had some roti left. <laughs> we were yeah. chopping up our roti. Um, using the roti to sop up that sauce from the crab. And, right. and, and Alex uh, Young, who is the chef owner of Fat Eatery, explained that he vacuum seals the crab legs with the curry so that it gets infused into the meat before it's cooked. And that that makes the difference. That's why you've got that kind of curry flavor in yeah. every bite instead of just it kind of getting on the shell and you licking it off your fingers. Right. So and that, that's it's a correct. very delicious dish. And then the, the dim sum, you know, getting that texture right on the dumpling wrapper is so tricky. So these were nice and thin. And then those high gal, the shrimp dumplings are so tasty. They were just so sweet and succulent. And, you know, sometimes those shrimp dumplings can just basically be an excuse for soy sauce and chili oil uh, and not have a lot of flavor on their own. And these, these were the opposite. These were like, I could have eaten these without anything. But I still dunk them in a in the spicy sauce. But but 
They didn't need it, is my point. Right. They could stay stood alone. You're exactly because, you know, I'm not a saucy girl. So I took the first one with no sauce. But then, that, like you said, the, the sauces were so good and spicy. It just enhanced what was already um, outstanding. That's like you said, that sweetness from the shrimp. It just enhanced it and gave it that kind of sweet, spicy um, mix. Absolutely. All right, Felice, uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. It's always fun. I think we had a great week of food. So I look forward to next time. Absolutely. And I will be right back with Jacob Ibarra from Tenfold Coffee. I am joined this week by the owner of Tenfold Coffee in the Heights, Jacob Ibarra. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for doing this. You know, I always like to start these interviews kind of at the beginning. So can you explain how you went from coffee drinker to coffee maker? Oh, geez. Um... Yeah, uh, I think I, I got into it initially, like probably like many in the coffee industry. I, I was a barista, you know, I, I think my first job was in the medical building of Texas A&M slinging really bad coffee, you know. Um, but I think what really set me on this path was probably uh, my time in, in Costa Rica right out of college. I, I moved over there. Um, and it was just hard to hard to miss it, to be honest. Um, we drank it at nine o'clock at 11 at, at lunch. Um, and then I had buddies that were helping their fathers during harvest time. So it was just, it was just all around me. And there was just this immense amount of pride with the production for the country too. So, um, now, I think that's you, what really, did you move so, to Costa Rica because you were interested in coffee or did you move to Costa Rica for other reasons and become interested in coffee? Yeah, the latter. So I, I, uh, I went over there to just kind of figure out life. I had just graduated from A&M, had a degree, but didn't know what the heck to do with my life. Um, and so I, I really just kind of took an off year, um, really. And yeah, coffee quickly became that, which I knew I would pursue. You know, I, I didn't really know what it was going to look like, but I knew I liked it. Yeah. And then, so, all right. So you, you developed this appreciation for coffee in Costa Rica. And then, and then as I recall from our previous conversation, you moved to Seattle. I did. I did. Yeah. I, you know, maybe it's kind of cliche, but I knew Seattle was kind of this Mecca for coffee in the U S. So I went up there to do a little bit more schooling as well. Um, I, I always thought that I'd be, um, I had a psychology undergrad thought I would kind of do something with counseling and coffee at, the, at that time, went up there and did some more graduate school, but um, always with the, I guess, with kind of the mindset that I would learn the coffee side of things as well. And, you know, just hopped into a company that had several cafes um, and a roasting department and, and basically took the first opportunity I could get to kind of get on the back end and that roasting, kind of the, the raw good side of it, anything really I could do. Um, you know, beyond being a barista, I, I was, I was just ready, um, at that point. So, yeah. 
I mean, so what was it about it that you kind of fell in love with that made you want to like go off of this path of um, therapy or psychiatry and, and kind of in the, you know, becoming a, a true coffee professional? Sure. Like, I, I mean, I think some of the psychology aspect kind of like really spoke to me about cafes. I, I loved how people just gathered, you know, the, the Northwest is really interesting because I, I believe it kind of caters to it. You know, when it's rainy and kind of dreary, people kind of tend to be inside. They, they want to congregate in somewhere outside of their home or their work. Um, but I just love the fact that not unlike food, but you can put this pretty affordable product in front of people and they, and they pause, you know, and, and so it was really the cafes that really attracted me initially. Um, I just liked that, that communal aspect. Um, I, and then, you know, really quickly you start kind of thinking through the supply chain and where all these coffees come from. And I love the fact, and it was kind of coupled with my, my time in Costa Rica as well, that, um, coffee's grown in these developing countries. Uh, these countries often need some type of help. You, you realize really quickly that you can play a, a piece in that um, to the consumer. Um, and and it, so it just, it kind of like checked a lot of boxes for me. Um, and so I was ready to kind of learn that craft side of it um, so that I could eventually do something like tenfold, you know, tenfold, I guess it's kind of in the makings for, for many years, but um, just had to start somewhere. Right. So is that when you started traveling to more of these countries and, and meeting coffee farmers? Yes. Yes. So it kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of this old, like, uh, when I started roasting, it was really this mentality of that journeyman, you know, I, I don't know if some of these industries have, have this, but you know, you kind of apprenticed and then you, you, you finally get to get on the machine and, and, you know, eventually I built my way into quality control and, and uh, you start meeting importers. The Northwest is kind of littered with basically all these suppliers. You know, it's, it's such a, a coffee centric place that um, you have several very well-known specialty coffee importers in the area. So I would visit them and, and essentially I would, I would go on these trips to, to try to work with these suppliers and, and, and then kind of pair it with the company that I was, I was working with. So, yeah, that was definitely the start. Yeah. And then, so how did you make your way from Seattle to Melbourne? Cause you weren't quite, you weren't quite ready to come back to Houston yet. No. Well, you know, what was, what's funny is I actually did try to come back to Houston at that point. Um, I, I had done five years in Seattle and I was done. I, I was kind of in a place in my life where like, I, I knew that if I didn't take some type of step, I'd kind of be stuck in a, in a certain way of doing life and doing things professionally. And, and so I was looking for that next step. And, um, I had two buddies that we actually tried to kind of make the swing, but, um, didn't, didn't work out. And so I was in Colombia um, and, and just so happened to, to spend a week with an Australian company on the same trip. Um, it was a company called five senses out in, um, they started in Perth on the Western side of Australia, but, um, when I met them, they had just built an office in Melbourne, which essentially was creating more opportunity for, for employees like myself. Um, so at the end of that trip, I, I basically was like, man, I'm interested. I love who y'all are. I love y'all's kind of attitude and vibe towards coffee and just general demeanor. And I was like, if there's you know really any opportunity here, I, I'd love to kind of make something happen. Um, and so we started that discussion, you know, and 
I made that jump kind of blindly, to be honest. And and what did you? I mean, you you arguably went from the most coffee obsessed city in America to the most coffee obsessed city in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and that's about the extent of what I knew, to be honest. Um, I, I knew that it was a mecca. I knew that it was going to be a good opportunity for me to learn coffee in a different way. Um, but I, I didn't know much other than that. You know, um, I did my basic research. I traveled with these guys. Um, but yeah, it, it was such an amazing opportunity. I mean, Australia is a wonderful country. Melbourne is such a cool city. Um, I, I felt very blessed, very fortunate to work for a company like that. And then in this, in this city that just, um, was so competitive, you know, with coffee. Um, and, and it just kind of bred this, this creativity and, and all these peripheral businesses that kind of support coffee, but, um, you know, could be machinery based around grinding coffee or, or, or steaming better, um, jugs of coffee. It's just really fascinating to see kind of what, what, um, popped up to, to, to potentially give somebody an edge, you know, in the industry. Yeah. So I guess, could you just sort of go into a little bit, like, how is it different? Cause I mean, I, you know, I think about, you know, Montrose of the Heights or, or other parts of Houston. I mean, you know, we have what seems to me to be, you know, relatively speaking, a lot of independently owned coffee shops. How is it kind of next level? Like what makes Melbourne so special? Yeah. You know, I think foremost, it has to do with the level of saturation. You know, it's, it's such a part of their inerrant culture. You know, the way that I, I came to kind of know it was, you know, it had a very European origination. So, you know, you had your Italians and your Greeks there um, developing that first wave of, of um, the coffee culture and, you know, and then it's also got this kind of British vibe where it's, you know, you have a cafe by day and a pub by night kind of mentality for most people. You know, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for, for people to just um, stop at their local kind of watering hole. Um, so I, I think that that's kind of the, the foundation for all of this. And then, and then specialty coffee just really took it to another level. Um, you know, they built on that and, you know, you, you mentioned like Montrose, for example, it's, it, it, it would be like having all of those types of inner city, very walkable neighborhoods, um, kind of littered throughout the city. Um, and, and each one would have several cafes and I think it would be the fit outs, uh, the level of quality and, really just people trying to, to compete for just a competitive edge that I, I think really led to just such a high overall quality level of coffee throughout the city. Yeah. Right. So, all right. And then, so while you're there, I guess you sort of continued traveling, right? You, you maybe you, you sort of deep in some of the relationships you'd already started to form. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I actually went over there to do some sales, but very quickly because of my background, I, um, I moved into the, basically the procurement side, the, the buying side for the company. Um, and you know, it, it was, a, it was a much bigger company than, than I had come from. So it was, um, you know, I, I took over, let's say central and South America, um, with a very specific focus on very high end, um, coffee. And then, 
you know, from there I took over, you know, other parts of the region until, until I became, I guess the head buyer. Um, uh, and, and then when I got to that, when I got to that spot, it became interesting because, um, you know, like all companies, it, there was, um, it, you have the procurement side, the buying side, and then you also have the cooking, the roasting side. And, and it became very apparent that they were, they were like siloed. Um, and, and so as a buyer, I could pick something for the company uh, for a very particular reason, only for the roasting team to, to handle it very differently than I expected. Um, so, so I pitched to kind of bring all of those departments together for this company. And what it ended up is, is kind of like product development in a way. Um, so, so you're, you're being kind of nice about this, but essentially you're saying that you would go out in the field and you would taste a coffee and think, Oh, if we roast this a certain way, we'll get these flavors and that'll be really delicious. And then you would send it back to the roasting team and they would roast it. Not that way. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and when like this company was let's say 15 years old when I was there, when I first started with them and, you know, they have an established clientele like across the country. So hundreds and hundreds of customers. And, you know, one of the big lessons is like, you're not just buying for your own preferences. You're buying for, for customers who are utilizing this coffee in a specific way. So, um, you know, you might buy a low acid, heavy body coffee for, uh, something like a blend, you know, that's going to go well with milk. Um, but my roasters might try to really bring out the acid of the coffee when, when really the coffee doesn't, doesn't actually have that, you know? Um, and so I would find that kind of dynamic happening a lot. Um, and essentially, yeah, we, we brought those departments together so that we could just have a, a really clear delivery to the customer, I would say. Um, yeah. All right. So, so you, so how long were you in Australia? And, and kind of what made you decide it was time to come back to America? Yeah, I was, I was there almost eight years. Um, and I would say it, it really, life just kind of changed. You know, I, I, when I moved out there, I wasn't married. Um, I was dating um, my now wife, you know, we did long distance for a year and then she moved out and then, you know, we had our first kid and, really it's it children kind of changed the whole dynamic of things you know um when they're little and you're gone for a month um it's no big deal they don't they don't notice that but when they get a certain age you know it starts kind of hurting uh you miss little milestones you know like them sitting up or or talking and um you know we were thinking about having another child and it's just really hard being far away from family you know her, her parents are around here as well and so um we had always thought about being back home and, and I had, if, I, if I'm real honest, I had always kept a, an eye on the Houston coffee scene as well. Um, I was friends with a lot of the guys here and, and, and just kind of was, was seeing when it might be an opportune time to kind of enter into the market. Um, and so a, a lot of that really lined up at the end of 2017. Um, and we made the move in early 2018 to start tenfold. Um, it was kind of the beginning of that. Okay. So what were the signs that made you think Houston was ready for you to come home? Well, I, you know, if I'm real honest, I, I think that, um, there was enough players here that had done a lot of the, the, the beginning legwork, you know, um, 
And the way that I look at, at um, coffee is that usually I look at markets and the first thing that usually kind of rises is, is a renaissance of food to some degree. And I, and I had seen that kind of happening from afar for Houston, you know, for the last like five to 10 years. And then um, what I, what I've noticed beyond that is that usually what follows after that is a craft alcohol kind of renaissance of some sort. Um, and then coffee is usually on that cusp. And, and I had just kind of seen all of those types of signs that um, Houston was kind of working its way to more readily accept um, maybe more players in, in a higher level of coffee, uh, just kind of across the board. Right. So, so then how did you kind of come back to Houston and, and sort of pick your location and, and make the decision to kind of open your own place? Well, um, I, I was doing real estate search from Australia, you know, in 2017, I, I was, I had hired a broker and I was looking around Houston. Um, I made a couple trips, you know, very, very quickly. I realized that it was probably going to be Montrose or the Heights, you know, these community, these communities that had some coffee presence, but, but were strong and, and walkable and, um, you know, had other kind of thriving hospitality scenes. Um, and Montrose, I guess at the time felt a little, maybe too, like, like there was too many people there, um, you know, maybe along that West timer corridor. And so the Heights quickly became that, which I, I, I put my focus on. Um, and then, you know, I, I looked at lots of different sites to be honest, but I, I really struggled with real estate. If, if I'm honest, um, you know, I, I was coming from, Melbourne and Seattle, which had all these older buildings that the cafe seemed to, to, to take over. And, and here I, I just didn't find anything like that with character. And so it took me quite a while to, to find the, the warehouse that we're in. Um, but um, I'm really happy with what we, what we landed with here. Yeah. So I guess let, let's talk about tenfold because it, you know, having sort of hearing your story again and, and kind of talking through it, I mean, you are, you are the coffee buyer um, and you are also in charge of the roasting and you're also, you know, working with training the baristas. So it, it really is this kind of holistic, you know, bean to cup approach that maybe not every coffee shop is, is employing. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because that's the hope we want to essentially create something from, from the very beginning all the way to, to the end. Um, and I look at it more like product development. you know, um, we go out into the field to, f with a very specific purpose. And, and the idea is that we have, uh, like a, a finish essentially with, with the consumer, um, and an experience kind of, um, around that, that, that we want to, to accomplish and execute on. So, um, part of that is also the roasting aspect. You know, we, we are very intentional about how we roast, um, you know, kind of gone are these days of a light, medium, dark roast. We're very specific. Um, we, we, we have refractometers that essentially are looking at the interior of the bean to the exterior of the bean, and then give us a, a numerical number that, um, is a spread between them. And we're really looking at sugar development and, and, um, what best reflects this given coffee. 
Um, and then we're also buying with, with just this hope of um, basically showing what countries have to offer. Uh, so we're, we're also very intentional about the, the countries we kind of choose to work with right now. Um, we are small and I, I, I want to focus our efforts in just four or five countries and showcase the, the variety, let's say, of, of a given country. Because um, the reality is, is these countries have a lot of different regions for coffee production. Um, you have a lot of micro kind of climates that contribute to different coffees and flavors. Um, and, and we think we can focus and deliver hopefully the quality aspect of it better by just keeping our, 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 our gaze in a, in a more focused manner. All right. So, so what are the countries you're buying from? Sure. So we've, we've started with Burundi, uh, Brazil, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Ethiopia. And yeah, the, the, the relationships that, that, that we're kind of carrying into, into tenfold are, are, are relationships that I've had for, for many years at this point. Um, so it's a lot of fun, you know, it's a lot of fun to, to, to kind of see how this market will receive these, these farmers and these countries and, um, and how it differs from, from other places, you know, I've been. Right. And I mean, obviously I don't think you're the, you're not the only person buying coffee necessarily from Ethiopia or, uh, Ecuador, these other, but like, are you the only one buying from these specific farmers? Is that safe to say? Um, in some cases, yes, but in some cases, no. Um, it's, it's really fascinating because, um, some of the guys here, you know, some of the other roasters have relationships with many of the farmers that I might have relationships with. So I'm, I'm having to take a very conscious effort and, and just say, you know what, I might have that relationship, but I, I'm just going to choose not to, um, not to work with that farmer for this market, you know, at this given time, because I just think there's, there's so much coffee out there. There's so many farmers out there um, who are willing to kind of, um, work with, with tenfold in a new market that, um, yeah, it, it, I, I want a unique offering, I should say. Um, but, th- but there are still some overlap, I would say for sure. Right. And then, and then you also have an educational component. I mean, I don't, um, yeah, you, you want to teach, uh, both consumers to be better coffee drinkers and, and also, you, you know, people who buy beans from you for their, cafes or restaurants like to, to brew it properly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the educational component is a really big piece for me. Um, the, the company that I left in Australia actually had no cafes despite being a, um, a national wide company. So they would go into markets with a training facility, essentially. I mean, they're very fancy, but like uh, still just a training facility. And it, it really just impressed upon me that, their success was basically built on supporting those that they sold coffee to, you know, it's, it's kind of a value add. And what's interesting is that it also, it also lends itself to being that last line of quality control. Um, so if, if that restaurant or that barista doesn't know how to handle your coffee, well, they're just going to kind of revert to, to habits that they have. And, and some of that might be bad. Some of that might be good. Um, and some of it might just not be tailored to your coffee. And so, um, we we want to educate those those customers that we have um, on how to to handle our course our, our coffee, and so we're developing a curriculum um, of classes that basically will take somebody 
from nothing all the way to maybe more palette development driven classes. Um, but what's been fun is, is actually the public classes. So I've done a free course every Saturday since, since we opened. Um, and what's been great is that we booked it out. Like we booked out three months basically from the get go and, and people's response has been really positive. Um, and, and I, I love it because it actually creates like a relationship with a certain group of people that I never expected to have such depth, you know, as, as a customer, but then kind of moving into that, that friendship category to, to them kind of cheering you on now. Um, and so we've, we've basically just done two different courses. Um, one is just exposing people to the coffees of the world. And I'll, I'll pick, you know, eight different countries, eight different coffees, and we'll dive into um, farming techniques. But what I'm really hoping uh, to teach them is how to, to move away from subjectivity and more towards objectivity. So I, I want them to leave the class thinking in, in, in categories of how to evaluate a coffee. Um, and, and really that's, that's looking at like acidity and body and flavor and aftertaste. And that way, you know, the hope then is that they can go taste coffee and they can begin to, to be a little bit more proper in their tasting and, and, and just a little bit more elevated in kind of their, their approach. Um, and then the second class we've been doing has been more uh, geared towards people brewing coffee at home. And that's been really fun as well. And it's, it's, it's kind of one of these things where they're already messing with the variables that they're, that we're teaching on. Um, they just probably don't understand how they all relate and how they come together. Um, and so it's teaching on like grind size and water temperature and, and what happens if you do, if you don't have the ability to change the water temperature, what, what should you do to get a better cup at coffee? And, you know, it's been really cool to hear people's feedback because they'll def they'll, you know, they'll Instagram me or whatever. And it's like, my next cup of coffee was so awesome. And, you know, it's just been fun to kind of help people on their, on their journey of getting a better cup. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean that, that, that sort of leads me. So would you say, I mean, so far, I mean, obviously opening in the middle of a pandemic is not anything you sort of anticipated, but <laughs> I mean, do you feel good overall about kind of the traction you're getting and the audience you're building and, and that kind of thing? I do, you know, you kind of have to hold it all in, in perspective for sure. You know, it, it's definitely, well, I don't, you know, in my lifetime, probably the weirdest time to maybe open a business. And um, there was a lot of unknowns, but, you know, we, we just have to look at the positive side of things. And, and I, I would say that the, the feedback and the, the business that we have been blessed with has been, has been great, you know, um, and, and in some ways, maybe even better than what I thought. So um, feel very fortunate, you know, to be honest. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, obviously you've worked for, um, you know, some pretty, some pretty substantial coffee players over the years. I mean, do you, how do you see tenfold growing? Do you want to uh, you know, grow your wholesale business? Do you want another cafe? I mean, what are your, you know, what are the next maybe couple of three years look like for you? Sure. Um, it's a little bit of both. You know, we essentially have two parts of the business that, you know, one is the retail, retail front and the other is the, the wholesale roasting. And we want to see them both grow. Um, 
I, on the roasting side, I'm having a lot of fun um, working with hospitality groups and, and perhaps uh, owners that have multiple cafes and working with them around custom blends for their, for their cafes and their, their, their given markets. Um, that's a lot of joy for me because I get to work down the supply chain and get a little bit more creative than, than normally for somebody. And um, I, I believe it adds value to their businesses. Um, so that's been fun. I'd like to obviously continue that side of things. And then on the retail side, yeah, we, we have, I think three other concepts that we'd love to see here in Houston. Um, but, but different too, you know, like not going to be what we've done here. Um, th- this was very much designed to, to make people curious, you know, we have the roastery in the lab here and just to, to hopefully get them thinking beyond their, you know, their given latte. Um, I'd like to kind of point out different things with, with all the spaces that are a little bit different. Um, so yeah, I think the next one we might go after is, is more like a cold brewing, um, play and, and, and some demonstrating some creativity around cold brew, which has been a, a huge surprise in some ways, but I guess it's a hot climate and it just, yeah, uh, I, I mean, when it's 95 degrees out, like the last, I, the last thing I want is a, is a hot cup of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it, I, it, you know, I'm coming from climates that are super mild. So um, while we made cold brew, it, it has been nowhere near the the consumption level that, that this cafe has, has had to, to put out, but, um, it just, you know, obviously when you see that people want it, like, you, you know, want this product, it, it, it leads you to think, okay, so how can I do this differently? How can I, how can I use what I've been exposed to, to maybe create a different product or, or highlight different coffees flavors or, um, so that's kind of what we're wrestling with, um, for the future with cold brew. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, but the, you know, these Australian style coffee shops are sort of, like you said, they're sort of famous for having, you know, coffee in the morning, maybe beer and wine at night and, and a pretty developed uh, food offering food menu. Yeah. Right. And you haven't really, that, that doesn't really seem like a big part of what tenfold is about. So do you, do you want to kind of put your spin on that or, or are you going to maybe kind of leave that alone? Well, yes and no. So, I mean, the pan- this is one of the one of the inverse or negative effects that the pandemic has given to us. You know, we've had to be very careful um, with just how we opened. Um, we actually have beer and wine launching October one, um, but but with that is the push in hours to the operational hours. So, you know, we'll be we'll be open till four p.m. at that point. So. You know, I, I'm seeing that the weekends we have enough people kind of gathering here that um, I think we can we can serve beer and alcohol and, and do some wine. Um, the food side of things has been a little bit interesting. I, I had to make the conscious choice for this site whether I was going to put the roastery here or whether I was going to put a kitchen. Um, and so I chose the roastery as a coffee company with this, um, but like you said, I'm, I'm very influenced from that time in Australia. And so um, I actually just had a, a, a good conversation with Van over at Cafeteria to possibly help me with, with launching a, something that's a little bit more substantial, you know, than just pastries here. Um, and so we're, we're, we're kind of working on that to see what we could do. Um, but I think it's going to be, 
maybe like a phase one and then a phase two type of thing. Um, but I'd love to, I'd love to step into that and, and kind of expose people to that a little bit more. Yeah. And I, I do really like that you're sort of partnering with some of these other small businesses, whether it's cafeteria or uh, claw walk or, you know, to mutually beneficial that, that seems like a, a really nice way for everybody to, to grow. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it, it was unplanned, I would say, but it has been, has been amazing. Um, and, and I think that's what, that's what's been so fun about um, being back in Houston is just kind of meeting all these creative culinary folks and, and, and seeing what, you know, what you can do. Um, uh, tomorrow I'm actually having the, the Tatamo guys over and we're just going to taste through his various, you know, corn tortillas. And I'd love to be able to just have different varietals of corn on the menu um, to drink with beer, you know, and, and maybe have just have some queso fresco um, melted in a few different types of corn, you know, it, it, it just seems endless here right now. It's, it's a really fun time, I think, to, to be a part of, I guess, just the hospitality scene here in Houston. You know, there are these small kind of creative people out there that are just doing amazing things. No, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that, Seems like a good place to sort of wrap this up unless there is something about Tenfold that I haven't asked you about that you want to discuss. <laughs> no, not really. Um, I think we, we hit all the, the major points for sure. Um, all right. Well, before but, I let you get out of here, you have to play the lightning round with me. Okay. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, cool. Jacob Ibarra, what is your favorite espresso beverage? Your, your favorite way to drink coffee. I've been drinking espresso tonics over these last couple of weeks. Um, uh, it, all right. This is, this is not one of the questions. What is an espresso tonic? Ooh, it's, it, um, it, it is this exactly what it, is, what it sounds like. It's espresso put over tonic water. Um, the, the tonic plays a, a kind of a huge part as to, to what it tastes like. So I, I went through a bunch of tonics to see which paired well with our coffee, but it probably doesn't taste anything like you would imagine. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. All right. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Oh, geez. Uh, DC talk. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, I want to say that was Morgan Weber's answer. I, I may be, I may not be remembering that right, but you, you (laughs) might be in, in surprisingly good company with that. Okay, cool. (laughs) All right. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive through. Oh, Chick-fil-A for sure. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Ooh, I like Altuve right now. I just, there's just something about a small dude just killing it out on the field that (laughs) makes me feel good. (laughs) Absolutely. And then finally, when you go to a pizzeria for the first time, what are your go-to toppings? Ooh, I'm generally liking it. uh, An arugula kind of prosciutto some kind of dry cheese go-to usually just to try something out. All right. Give us the, the website and the social media and all that for tenfold coffee. Yeah. So on Instagram we're tenfold coffee at tenfold coffee and the website's the same. It's just tenfold coffee.com. Jacob. Easy. Thank you very, thank you very much. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. You Cheers. can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week. Cool. 
That's it. All right, we're clear. Thanks, man. No, thank you. That was awesome. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good one. You too. Talk soon.